Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Christian Centre. Yes, so as Tim Barton, when he was leading worship, he said, didn't he, that you know, sometimes we need to get our view of ourselves and our view of God right. And, um, and, and then we, we, we kind of worship out and we respond out to that. We pray out to that. So that's the shape of this morning, we hope. So hopefully we'll get our view of ourselves and God um, as straight as we can. And then we'll be able to uh, pray uh, into what's going on at the moment. So I've just got four uh, biblical reflections that I want to share with you. Um, it's our aspiration, isn't it, as we follow Jesus um, to be Christians who are shaped by the word of God and how the way that, you know, there's lots of ways people are reacting to what's going on with Ukraine and Russia and, and all of that. And, uh, but we, we need to aspire to be shaped primarily by the word and to respond out to that. Obviously, there's not a bit of the Bible particularly dealing with Mr. Putin and um, so we cut, it's not as specific as that, but the Bible does have uh, things to say about war uh, and the shape of what the Bible says, um, I think, has a lot to teach us about how we respond to it. So let's dive in. Uh, so the first thing I think we need to recognise is that the Bible uh, should give us grounds to be clear that war is just a part of living in a fallen world. Um, when we've known a period of peace, uh, I think it's, it's natural, perhaps easy for us to start taking for granted the peace that we live in and to come to expect that that is somehow what we should expect. That's what ought to be the case. That's what, um, and, and even for me, I, I have realised in the last week or two, I think I've had an expectation that I have a sort of right to a life that where where. I'm not at war, <laughs> and my country's not at war. Um, some of you who are older, I think, will probably be a bit more biblically grounded than me in this regard. Uh, because I'm 33, I think I just haven't lived through any significant war that's really had any prospect of touching my life. So when you have a war in Europe which involves uh, you know, Russia, one of the nuclear superpowers, and you know that NATO might get involved, all of a sudden you think, goodness, this actually has the potential to affect my life. I sort of thought I had a right to not ever have that be the case. But that really is just immature of me, because as we read the Bible, we should be entirely unsurprised um, at the prospect that war will happen. Our faith tells us that although God made our creation for peace and for beauty, there is a, a really true sense in which peace is normal. <laughs> That's God's intention. That's how creation's meant to work. That our human choice to rebel against God, the fall and all that that brings with it, has uh, corrupted that. And has opened wide the door to all forms of suffering and evil, as I talk about in the Theology of Suffering podcasts. And war is one of those evils that the fall opens the door to. War is taken for granted in the Bible as one of the symptoms of our present sickness. And um, the only conception of a time without war is when Jesus comes again. And really, it shouldn't have... Um, been such a surprise for me when Jesus quite bluntly says in Matthew, you will hear of wars and rumours of wars, 
See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. He couldn't really be clearer. (laughs) And how could it be otherwise, really? The sin uh, that craves control of each of us, the sin uh, that desires money and power and material benefits and privilege is in all of us. We all have the uh, sinful tendency to desire such things and to be willing to take them at the expense of other people. So all it takes is for one of us to have enough power and influence and war is not only likely but perhaps inevitable this side of Jesus' return. The world, the flesh and the devil will all pull humanity in that direction. You know, it's because of the Lord's mercies we're not consumed, isn't it? So this is the first reflection, really. War just is part of living in a fallen world. And although we may be horrified by it, perhaps we shouldn't be particularly surprised. Our faith should lead us to expect that at all times in human history, we will find constantly examples of great virtue and love and examples of great evil all of the time until Jesus comes again. That's just what it's like to live in a fallen world. And because the uh, cause of war is inseparable from our fallen nature as human beings, this leads to the second reflection, I think, uh, that the Bible can give us, which is that um, war is going to be complex. Morally complex, complex in its causes, complex in how we should respond to it. It's often not going to be as simple as the good is against the bad is. Although we find it easy to think like that, and there's a certain comfort in thinking like this. But Paul Paul says this in Romans 3, uh, verses 9 to 18. He says this about humanity. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, if we know uh, the book of Romans, we know that immediately after this, Paul goes to talk about Jesus (laughs) and what he does to make a difference about this. But this is his kind of summing up of the state of humanity that their feet are shift swift to shed blood, the way of peace they have not known. I think we have to take this seriously, that, um, that in each of us we have a tendency to see our uh, cause as just and right and the other person's cause as illegitimate and wrong. Um, our sinful condition means that But for the grace of God, but for his mercy, all our feet are swift to shed blood. And when we apply this to communities and to nations and and to the world stage, we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, to find that more often than not, the line between good and evil doesn't fall neatly between two sides of any particular conflict. 
you know, I think we, um, we all have very short memories about our own nations often <laughs> and, and um, the times where we have taken up arms for what we perceive as justifiable purposes. And more often than not, if you dig into the causes of any particular war now, we find that it is related to wars in the past and events that have preceded and there's a tangled web and all of this, um, yeah, all of this means that war is complex. Now, let me be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we cannot do the hard work of saying uh, what is right and what is wrong in this situation. You know, who is acting more justly and who is acting, acting more unjustly. I'm not saying that in the present Russia-Ukraine conflict we can't make distinctions and we can't, um, you know, make some claims about, about where right and wrong lies. But what I am saying is that before we do that, I think it, a huge dose of humble pie is called for, knowing that but for the grace of God, all our feet are swift to shed blood. And knowing that because of the evil of the human heart, it, it, often things are complex. Doing what is right in any situation is also difficult, isn't it? And this is the call to pray for our leaders. I'm sure we'll do that as a part of this but. But when, you, when you're in a conflict, when you have to make decisions that are going to cause death, that are going to cause human suffering, and you have to balance all kinds of factors, and there's no clear line of good and evil sometimes, it's incredibly complex to work out what is the right thing to do, isn't it? So there's a call here for humility, I think, as the people of God. And there's a call to prayer for our leaders. But there's also a call for faith, isn't there? Given what I've just described, we could sink into the slough of despond, as John Bunyan put it, wouldn't we? How, how can we have any hope for good outcomes from a bunch of sinful and corrupt human people making decisions in a hugely complex situation? How can we have hope for goodness? Well, we have hope for goodness not out of the righteousness of humans or out of um, our ability to have brilliant ideas and solutions, but we have hope because of the mercy of God, don't we? That, um, or in, his, in his grace, so often things are not as bad as they could be because of his restraining hand. Amongst our mess, he is still able to protect us from our worst evils and to sustain us in our brokenness and even to bring order out of chaos. And that takes me to my third point. God makes a habit of bringing order out of chaos, of bringing light into darkness. And particularly with war, God has a track record of accomplishing his purposes, even in the midst of war, and even when um, the baddies win, if you want to return to a goodie and baddie uh, simplification. I want to look at four quick examples that even, even when the um, evil triumphs in war, God's purposes are worked out in the midst of that. So first of all, when God led his people into the promised land, you know they come out of Egypt, don't they, in the Exodus, and they receive the law, and Moses leads them, and he leads them into the promised land. And he says, you're going to drive out the nations, and I'm going to give you this land. 
Um, we can initially think that this is a kind of nasty example of divine favoritism, isn't it? That God's going to drive out these nations so that his favorites can be planted in the land. But Deuteronomy 9 tells us it's exactly not this. In Deuteronomy 9 verse 5, God says, It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. Because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. So God kind of goes out of his way to say that um, it's not because you're particularly good, but I am going to use this process to bring my judgment and justice onto this particular bunch of people in these nations. And later in Israel's history, though she was on the other foot, wasn't it? When Israel became wicked and corrupt and abandoned God, they in turn were removed from the land. And we read about that in Isaiah, Isaiah 44 and 45. God speaks to his people and he tells them that he's going to use the Persian ruler Cyrus to accomplish his purposes in the nations. So I'll quote a couple of the verses. So Isaiah 44, 28, God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose. In Isaiah 45, verse 1, even more shockingly, um, God says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, which we could translate to Messiah, you know, this same sort of idea. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. Cyrus was the Persian ruler. He did not worship God. He was an idolater. He, um, he, he, he was cruel. <laughs> His people were massive expansionists, building their own area, their own area, their own empire. And God says, they're going to be victorious in war, and I'm going to use that to accomplish my purposes. So in human war, God will work out his purposes on the earth. And that's even the case when the result doesn't go the way we think it should or we think justice demands. That's even the case when the victorious are those that seem more evil than those they conquer. And the prophet Habakkuk is deeply troubled by this, as we might be. I am. Lord, really? Habakkuk is deeply troubled by this. You know, that might be a good book to read at the moment. Maybe with a, 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 if you could find a little Bible study on it or a study Bible. But the book of Habakkuk is all about a man of God wrestling with when evil nations are conquering other ones and he's appealing to God for justice. It might be worth spending some time in for us. At the start of the book, Habakkuk complains about the oppression and the evil that's rampant among the people of God. That's a normal prophet thing in the Bible, isn't it? This stuff's going on in your people, Lord. Isn't this terrible? Isn't this terrible? Then the Lord says to him, you're right, Habakkuk. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use the Babylonians to punish Israel. And Habakkuk says, hold on a minute. He's horrified at this. He says, Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment. And you've established them for reproof, but why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he is? 
So in other words, Habakkuk says, I understand that you're going to bring judgment on Israel, but you're using a nation that's more evil. How is that right? They are more wicked than your people who you're, who you're bringing the judgment against. And in the rest of the book, we read some of God's response to Habakkuk. And, you know, he says that even though I'm going to use the Babylonians, I'm still going to judge them because of the evil in their heart and, and these sort of things. And as ever with God, he sort of says, Habakkuk, you're seeing things through this little lens, but I've got this bigger picture and all of that sort of thing. But these are examples. I give you these examples from the Bible to encourage you that God accomplishes his purposes even in the midst of the horrors of human war and he accomplishes his purposes regardless of whether the apparently good or the apparently evil have the upper hand. And God talks about a longer frame of reference than we often tend to think about. Now this might raise some questions for us about the way God stands behind good and evil and um, what he chooses to allow. In, uh, in his justice, in his love. And I've tried to explore some of these in the podcast on suffering, which should be available in the coming weeks. But for this morning, let us take heart that God is always at work in the affairs of man. Nothing sits outside his sovereign control. And um, we may not know quite what's going on but God will always be working to accomplish his purposes there's mystery there's ambiguity but we can be confident in the sovereign purposes of God so finally my, my sort of final thing I think the Bible might help us with as we think about Ukraine and Russia is that as significant and as traumatic as war is, the kind of call to the church remains the same. Remains the same. Paul wrote in Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So as massive as war is, and it is, so hear me right, war is massive, but it's not the thing of ultimate concern for the Christian. Ultimately, we wrestle against bigger enemies than any one nation state or any alliance of nation states because we wrestle for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ amongst the hostile world. You know me well enough by now and other teachers I've given in the past. I'm not saying that we shouldn't get involved in the affairs of the world and in the public square. You, you know I've encouraged you before that this is a profound calling for Christians to be salt and light, to do good to all, especially those of the household of faith, to be peacemakers, to seek the common good. All of this involves Christians in the public square, in international relations. We should be engaged. There is a call here for the church. But we also have to be clear that there is something more primary than that. That's our calling. When he stood trial, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. 
but my kingdom is not of this world. We're part of a kingdom that can't be drawn on a map. And the primary call of the church is to bear witness to Jesus and the gospel in peace and in war, in freedom and in oppression, when we're accepted and when we're persecuted. Tim Barton uh, sent me a quote from a Ukrainian pastor this week. I think he'd come across it in some Open Doors literature, so some of you may have already read this. But this Ukrainian pastor said this. He said, uh, you have to understand that historically we've had this experience under the Soviet Union before. So the church did not forget what that means. We will rearrange, we will reorganize, and we will still do what we always do, which is proclaim the gospel. This church leader is clear that if Putin successfully invades and occupies Ukraine, that there will be substantial consequences for the church. But he's also clear that his task remains much the same. Revelation repeatedly points to this reality again and again when it describes the, um, the, the suffering and the difficulties of our lives of, as, uh, as a tribulation that's part of living in the fallen world and repeatedly calls on Christians for faithful endurance, to keep on keeping on, to keep being faithful to the gospel and to witness. Paul, again, returning to Ephesians 6, he writes... Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God so that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. Stand firm. Keep going. Declare the gospel, witness to Jesus, stand firm. Something we can pray for our brothers in Ukraine, isn't it? I think that's what I want to share from the Bible. I just pray that that sinks into our hearts and then the other guys will really lead us into praying for the conflict. Say, Lord Jesus, we are still quite detached from what's happening in Ukraine in terms of there's no bombs landing in our cities at the moment. But it does confront us with the prospect of war that we haven't had to face for quite a while. So Lord, help us. Um, help us to become more the people that you would have us be, Lord, as we, as we respond and wrestle with this. Lord, as we look to practically do what we can to wrestle in prayer, to engage with our community and the people that we know. We pray, Lord, for this biblical way of seeing things would get deep in us, that it would breed a courage and a confidence in your power and sovereignty. A courage and a confidence that you can be trusted and that you are at work. I pray, Lord, that, you know, I probably pray for me most of all in this, that in some ways this would grow us up <laughs> into some aspects of maturity that we may not have yet. Lord, I 
sort of surrender to you my my sinful expectation of a life of peace and ease and comfort. Help me become someone that can be faithful to you in a time of war. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Amblecote Christian Centre. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website www.amblecotechristiancentre.org.uk